try a hello this time. What do you think? Hello. Welcome to the sixth episode of the complete Stanley Kubrick. I did an introduction. What do you think? What do you guys think? I'm, I'm glad we're finally uh, so comfortable that we can uh, address people with hellos. <laughs> Um, that was Travis. Uh, hello, Travis. Welcome back. Hello. How's it going? Uh, it's going all right. You know, this is uh, this is quite the uh, quite the deep movie. So I'm ready to do this, but I'm also a little intimidated. Um, fortunately, we have uh, a guest here, and this is a big moment for uh, for the show, Travis, because this is our first uh, completion. We've we've we now have the complete. Uh, Magic Lantern podcast hosts. Uh, so uh, we have the second half of, of the Magic Lantern podcast, uh, the better half, as they say. I was about uh, to say, the better half. Eric, sure. Yeah, Erica Long. Welcome uh, to The Complete. Thank you so much, Matt and Travis. And I am sorry, though, that you started my introduction by saying fortunately, because I am also quite intimidated by this. So fortunately, unfortunately, you have me. I will do my very best i promise i'm sure it'll be pretty good uh i glowed about your show when cole was on but uh it's definitely worth doing again it's a it's a really great listen and um you you guys have definitely helped me look at uh a number of movies both that i like and don't like uh in a different light and uh it's been uh it's it's really fun to listen to well that's very kind of you thank you so much um so yeah uh um, if you could just say a few words about your feelings on Stanley Kubrick and how you first came to his work, how you have interacted with it since, and kind of how you're, you know, feeling about him, feeling about him or any of his films at, at this point uh, in your sort of movie watching career. Well, I think in in going back through my history. I really do believe that the first Kubrick film I saw was The Shining, oddly enough, and I think also probably way earlier than I was ready for it. And then, much later, the concept of who Kubrick was, that he in fact existed, that a director existed, came much, much later, and I think that that was when I discovered 2001. And I would say I really have never been particularly a devoted fan of his, and that has not changed over the years. I have seen eight of what I consider to be those modern works. I, I guess, always had the idea that he wasn't necessarily speaking to me. And so the thought of him behind the camera wasn't the thing that would draw me to the next film. It was the film itself. And I know that that's kind of a goofy thing to say, but because of course it was his vision, but in terms of what he was trying to communicate to me, I guess, as a, as a woman, hmm. as a young person, it, it often left me cold 2001, especially. Oh yeah, no, we've uh, <clears throat> that's a running uh, we check in on the uh, the uh, his consideration for females. Uh, we dip into that every episode. Has it improved? Has it gotten better? Uh, that's one of the things that we 
we we mention quite often because uh i don't yeah i don't like first i i was very strong like saying that like i don't think he likes women but then as i watch more and more of his films and look into them more i just don't think he concerns himself at all with uh the female characters in his films they're more male driven stories so i could see how totally it wouldn't connect to a large population and i definitely don't mean to suggest that any film has to have some sort of a female character or some sort of particular bent that I identify with. There's just something else. There's a coldness. There is, I think, a disinterest in humanity in general, I would say. Um, from an inside perspective, it, it, everything seems to be at a distance and often driven by motivations that I don't understand. I guess the other the, the thing I'll ask you, you know, you said as a young person, do you mean that in the sense of that he doesn't speak to you as a young person of your time, uh, sort of the modern, you know, your modernity and, you know, in a way, um, or uh, as opposed to speaking to young people in general? You know what I mean? I don't, I do, I do, and I don't know that I have a ready answer for you when I use that term. I guess I think more about having started, like the both of you and, and many of the people that we know, from a very young age, being an in-depth and dedicated film goer. So again, watching things that were probably beyond my years, and not understanding those worlds and watching what was projected to be adult behavior played out in front of me that did not mirror anything that I had any sort of experience with mm. or could also see in my own daily life. It was as if everything's existing on a planet that I don't live on. Yeah, I like that. Oh, well, yeah. I think that'll be definitely something that we talk about today because this is a, a movie that is very strongly feels like a simulacrum of reality in a lot of ways. There's this weird disconnect between what is happening uh, in the movie and kind of how you are, how it's coming across to the viewer, I think. And uh, I think that's one of the more kind of complex aspects of this movie. But we might as well get right into the movie. Um, I'll, I We'll do my normal little Wikipedia rundown of kind of what happened uh, surrounding this film. Uh, this is a movie that Kubrick had a lot more opportunities after Spartacus because it was the biggest moneymaker in Universal history. It was a, a big success. It won Oscars. Um, and so he was able to do uh, pretty much whatever he wanted. Um, and the thing that he picked was uh, Lolita. And it, it's an interesting choice for him because uh even though he had been working uh from novels in pre in previous films uh almost all of his previous films were based on books uh with the exception of his first um this is the first classic that he selected and it had only been out for a few years at this point but it was already sort of established as one of the major books of the 50s um, and he actually did uh, write a screenplay. He asked Nabokov if he would write it, and Nabokov declined. 
and he wrote a screenplay that he ended up not being happy with. So he gave, he threw a bunch of money at Nabokov and told him he was the only person who could write this screenplay for him. So Nabokov moved out to Los Angeles and wrote a 400-page screenplay um, that Kubrick promptly sort of threw out most of and uh, worked off of uh, for his own purposes. Um, Nabokov would go on to uh, publish his screenplay. I have not read that, um, but uh, I've heard that it's um, pretty substantially different from what we're seeing on screen here um, and has kind of uh, deviations from the book as well. Keeping that kind of introduction in mind, uh, we might as well just uh, get into kind of our initial thoughts on the movie. Um, Erica, when, when I asked you if you wanted to uh, be on the Lolita episode, you mentioned to me that Lolita is actually your favorite uh, novel. Um, so if uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how you relate to the book and then kind of what your initial thoughts on, on the movie are. I adore this book. It is my number one favorite. I reread it specifically for this podcast as well because I wanted to remind myself of the tone, even though I've read it a few times, there have been a couple of years since I read it the last time. So I wanted to get right back into that world that we are in of Humbert's. And especially when I contrast it or compare it to our modern world and what feel to be the constant uh, sex scandals and mm. very unfortunate issues around consent and predation and I was kind of surprised that there were actually no surprises because I remember gigantic chunks of text and scenes and transitions so well because I am so enthralled and I felt like my life changed when I read that book so my initial thought I think is that and I don't, I don't mean to jump ahead too much, but I think that as an adaptation of the specific thrust and tone of the book, I think the film wildly misses the mark. But as its own piece, and I know, I'm sure we're going to talk about this at some point, but as its own piece, I think it's successful. Okay. Now, uh, I guess I have not read the book, and it's something that I think I haven't read the book because... I I have a really hard time with this movie. I don't I'm not particularly fond of this movie. This isn't uh something that I find even this is probably my third third or fourth time seeing it and I try, you know, you make that effort and people are like, "Oh, it's a great movie." And you try and you try and it just doesn't connect with me at all. So I think I've steered clear of the book because of that. Um what kind of things do you think uh when you say it's wildly off the mark, like what what's the what is the tone in the book that draws you to the book and makes you makes it one of your favorites? Because I'd be really interested to hear about that. I think, aside from the tone, when you have what I consider to be a genius, that is Nabokov, I, he is understood to be, I think, not just by me, but a literary genius. And when you look at the virtuosity of what he has written in his non-native language, that he doesn't duplicate words in the way that we are used to, it, it's just unbelievable. I think you will be, 
I, I, I hope that you will be surprised and delighted if you get around to reading the book. I don't think I'm overhyping it. It's a work of incredible beauty. And at no point, at least to me, do you feel that what Humbert has decided to do or who Humbert is, is an acceptable thing. And so the biggest problem I have, and, and sorry if I could backtrack for a second, when I say successful, I'm going to temper that. And, and actually, probably I have more points that if I think back then, I would label this as not necessarily a success because I don't really enjoy it either. But there are things that I love about it. So I know I'm kind of going back and forth a little bit here, but there's going to be a lot of that on this episode. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the thing that I was troubled the most by, if we get back to tone and difference between what the book firmly establishes and what the film chooses to try to establish, I look back at the words of James Harris, the producer, and he said, in regards to Lolita as a character and Sue Lyons as an actress, we knew we must make her a sex object. She couldn't be childlike. If we made her a sex object where everyone in the audience could understand why everyone would want to jump on her and you make him attractive, it's going to work. And that makes me want to throw up right now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because in the book... It's very clearly established, his pathology, this concept of what a nymphette is and why he and people like him are obsessed by those very, very young people. And the age bracket is 9 to 13 at the most, really kind of 9 to 12. And Lolita is only 12. And yet they chose to take Sue Lyon, who I think is a great actress, and I think she does a great job in this role as it's written for the film. But they chose someone who naturally appears to be older than they are. And they also aged the character of Lolita as well to make her 14. And somehow, I feel like in their minds, and in his words, that makes it understandable. And that makes it okay that... Are, are they looking to somehow make me feel better if I find any elements of this to be erotic? Are they trying to make it okay for what Humbert did and what other men and women might feel towards very young people? I, I'm, I don't have that answer. Well, I think that I do have the answer and I don't like the answer. Yeah, no, for sure. I think uh, by, by aging her to that point, you've you're giving everyone a pass into being totally okay with sexualizing her to the point that they have i mean if you you know going back and just looking at the ad campaign for in the pictures for you know all the advertisement for this movie it is they so overly sexualize her like there's never moments of this over sexualization of this degree in the film itself that you know it's almost like by by having this be such a high bar of like okay it's totally okay for you to want this person so now you'll understand why they want this person which i can't i can't reckon with i i i find it you know i just find it so hard to uh stomach in terms of like uh you know 
finding some sort of joy or mirth or merriment in watching these two men uh, have a game of one-upsmanship to try to uh, bed a 14-year-old girl, which is just... I, and I, I can't I can't even fathom the world in which like there's a bunch of people giving each other the elbow and the ribs and saying yeah man this is great look at this stuff this is hilarious I it's so it's such a hard uh, pill to swallow that I think I, it it makes it really difficult to you know every time I'm like finding myself like oh that's funny Peter Sellers is funny here I then go and it's all in all in a it's it's all in the quest to steal this girl from this other guy and i just ooh, it bothers me so yeah it's in furtherance of pedophilia and it's okay because she looks like she's 17 and because at one moment or a couple of moments you can confuse sexual precociousness with consent Mm. and complete understanding and then forward thinking so we're ascribing these motivations to this very young person that are supposed to be adult motivations and that is not acceptable to me and i think that that is clearly delineated in the book it is never suggested that even though she already has a sexual history to the extent that she can and that she can understand and even though there is a physical relationship happening, he very clearly, and this is the thing I've always remembered this, he, when he's thinking, when Humbert is thinking back on this time that they spent together and talking about how every time, every time she cried and every time she turned away and the moment that I really, really, really dislike about sort of, I guess, maybe midway through when Lolita in the film begs him, do not ever leave me. And that does not happen in the book. And so it's also, again, setting up this idea that she is asking for that predation as well and giving her consent. And that does not take place. Oh, and in and, and the, and the scene that it's taking place, it's after she's told her mother's died. Absolutely. And it's, it's and I have no home and I have no place to go back to. And the only thing she knows is this this man who you know they've had this moment together of playfulness in in her eyes because it's a game to her at this point because she is young and she's experimenting with a lot of her sexuality and he is taking full advantage of that and then that moment of please don't leave me is more of a is more of a i have nothing don't don't abandon me at this moment because i don't i'm lost and that's and he takes advantage of it as opposed to you know you know that whole scene she's crying on the bed and you can just see that he's like we are wasting time with you crying we have this hotel room <laughs> and you're just like ew please stop please be caring please give her a moment to like mourn over her mom which you withheld the information for so you can have a dalliance with her but i do think those moments they they kubrick is knowing of the fact that that is happening that that there is this other um level to uh to it i think it's just so much more difficult in a film to make it clear what you're doing than in the novel where it's very clear sort of the cracks showing between what uh Humbert is saying and what the actual reality of what happened is 
Um, I mean, I, I, so I, I think that that aspect of it bothers me less than what you, what you guys were talking about earlier, which is this, this idea of aging her up and of sexualizing her in a way that makes it feel like you're giving her, um, like it, ha it, it, the movie almost makes it seem like it's funny that she seduces him, uh, you know, in, in the hotel room, uh, instead of him seducing her, but she's not seducing him in that situation. I mean, she, like, like you guys have said, she's a child. And I think mm. that's where really the tonally, it just misses the mark completely. Um, and, and Kubrick has really kind of just, um, dismissed the criticism that, uh, she's older in the movie than she was in the book by saying, oh, well, she was 12 in the book. She was 13 when we started filming. Um, you know, that, that, that's a big difference that that's when people go through puberty and the, the difference between a 14 year old and a 12 year old is a big difference. Um, and, uh, in, in terms of kind of how people look. And I do think the most messed up aspect of that is that I think if they had used a girl who was 11 or 12 when they made the movie that they would not have been able to make the movie because the uh it, it was it was not the MPAA yet but the the kind of the gatekeepers the code was still around essentially um yeah, Christian, the, Christian it was Coalition yeah I mean it was it was at that point there was a perception that when, once you go through puberty you're it, it's it's somehow like less problematic to depict uh a child in a sexualized way and i think that's the sort of aspect of this movie that ultimately the film never should have been made at that point um because that you know no matter how effective you are at kind of uh conveying the message of the book in, in a film, um, once you, you've aged up this child to the point where you're kind of, uh, implicating the film and, and what we're seeing with our own eyes, as opposed to what a child molester is telling us, uh, you, there's just no way to accurately convey the sentiment of the book. I think, I think that someone potentially could have done it of course not within the confines of the system that's at the what time. i mean yeah but at that point. yeah exactly and in order to do it they would have had to have given lolita a voice which they do not in this film and i don't think kubrick has the capacity to be able to have done that i i i, I think whatever robot lived inside of him would have prevented that from taking place. And I don't think, and, and they, like you mentioned, they would have had to so clearly, so closely mirror the book. I think you could have only done it through extensive voiceover, but they would have had to have examined the layers that are built into the book and the conflicting motivations and how those things change. And, the pathology itself and i don't think they had the capacities as people to be able to carry that off well even even when they did a remake in the modern times uh 
they aged her up even more. They made her 16. And they, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they, they, they focused on the erotic uh, tabooness of it as opposed to the Adrian Lin one. I think Adrian Lin, yeah. am I right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, they focused on the taboo aspect of it and, you know, removed a lot of the comedy and made it more of a, you know, which still also doesn't seem to come anywhere close to the book that you're talking about. So, like, it's, it's so strange, like, they just go further and further away from what, the source material is it it mutates it to still like to something that is uh uh, not you know something that you can't stomach because there is no real depth into the motivations and the psychology of the characters which would help explain a lot more because i think i was trying i was trying to clock it i i want to say it's an hour in the film before we hear lolita speak like of something besides a grunt or whatever, like she actually has like a, a paragraph of lines that she speaks of. And I was like, wow, for a character that this is, you know, who we're focusing on is the, the title character of the movie, the obsession of this character. Uh, it's a long time coming before we actually get to hear something that is uh, from her thoughts and not a, a reaction or a, uh, a rebuttal to her mother who Going back to what you were saying earlier, Matt, about uh, the scene in the bedroom uh, where she seduces him, you know, you get a motivation for it directly in the scene after when she's like, let's tell mom. Like, she totally just wants to, like, she's antagonistic to her mother and wants and sees that game that they played as something that she can lord over her mom and make her upset and angry about, you know, the teenage rebellion kind of idea. And I found that to be, like... Uh, that was a moment of kind of like, okay, that makes perfect sense because there's no reason for her to like James Mason up until this point because she he is a bit of a father figure. And you can see her teasing her mom with like lingering kisses on his cheek or spending too much time with him up in his bedroom feeding him. And she's doing that all in service of just annoying her mother, which, you know, gives her a motivation and gives her a character a little bit more depth, but, you know, than just a girl doing hula hoop in the yard for us to stare at for, uh, for, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah. I think you have to really read into even the final scenes, um, with Lolita, uh, far too much, um, in order to give her character, um, a true kind of arc and give her, her own kind of motivations and, um, and, kind of feelings about what has taken place in the movie you know it to on the surface of those scenes she seems very kind of you know she's sort of petulant throwing it in his face she's and then she's just kind of like happy that she has all this money and that she can go and do whatever she wants i think in order you really need to dig i think too deeply to get at kind of what that moment really should be about ultimately is her kind of realization of just how you know terrible what has happened to her is or at least that you know she has some sort of feeling about it um and on the surface that that scene is really all about just showing that this guy quote unquote loves her which you know a a lot of people surrounding this film have have read into this idea that like it's a love story or that he's truly in love with her and you know Kubrick has said 
they're not being able to use more of the erotic content um, from the book uh, made it more difficult to hide the reveal at the end that he's genuinely in love with her, that this wasn't just lust. I, I don't buy that for a second. I mean, I just don't see that as being a thing. Like, he was, you know, he sexualized this child. He, uh, you know, basically raped her. And now he's supposed to be in love with her. Like, he just is uh, obsessed with his fantasy uh, that he was able to, uh, you know, have this fantasy come true. And now he's such a sad, pathetic person that he's going to give up all of this money to her. Um, you know, I don't think he's, I don't think he feels guilty about it for one second. I think he's just like, this is his life and that, you know, he's, he's devoted his life to this horrible thing and he can't give it up anymore. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's obsession. It's not, love. it's very, painting, yeah. And, and that, that painting confuses it as love me the is most. An excuse, yeah. No. Yeah. I mean that, you know, and, and I think all of this is kind of outside the movie in a way, um, because I think you can just sort of ignore what Kubrick has said about this film in interviews. And I think then the movie becomes kind of better <laughs> because I think that within the film, he has placed more complexity there than there seems to be when people ask him questions about the movie or when other people involved in the movie like James Harris have talked about the movie or certainly the campaign around the film. I mean, some of the, the pictures that they didn't use are even worse than the promo pictures that they were eventually allowed to release. I mean, there's a promo picture of her where she's naked uh, under under a sheet in bed looking seductively at the camera. I mean, the idea that they, thought, that they thought that was appropriate um, for this movie is is very odd. And, and the trailer for the movie, too, would, you know, uh, how did they ever make a movie about Lolita? Um, it, it really plays it like a skin flick. Like you're going to see, you know, it's kind of like how they advertised uh, the Bergman movie Summer with Monica in, uh, you know, 10 years earlier, where it's mm. just like, uh, this is this is not the movie that you're going to see. And yet like sex sells, I guess. So we have to sell uh, this movie about a guy raping a 14 year old as like a, uh, a dirty, fun, dirty little movie. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I, I think again, they could have tried to focus on the idea of love and what Humbert is capable of feeling when he says that he loves Lolita and always has. They're not capable of doing that. And so it does become then a skin flick. And there is a fantastic prologue in the book where Nabokov addresses us and talks about what we as a society in 1952, 1954, I can't, I can't recall now, but what we couldn't, what we could absolutely not handle. And that was one of those stories of, of this level of complexity around pedophilia and trying to understand and examine and think about how all of those things can be true, how a young, how what a young person can feel and what they can act on and how that can change. And then how a predator reacts as well. And 
I think that that continues to be the case and was the case when that film was made and was the case when the Adrian Lynn film was made. And if we were to remake it again right now, probably the same kind of approach. Yeah, because I mean, it, go ahead. It, sorry, it becomes nearly impossible for me to separate the book out because I, I probably then try to do the work that the filmmaker should have done, which is what do I understand about these motivations and how do I see that playing across the screen? Because when he says that he loves, loves Lolita in the book, I believe him. But again, you're talking about a liar and a predator and right. a pedophile. And so the, those are the kinds of questions that I, I want to be uncomfortable and ask those questions and try to explore that. And the film is not interested in that. Do you feel like you believe him in the film? I think I'm just way too caught up. And and I probably do because I think James Mason is wonderful. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, he's, he's this entire movie, basically. I mean, you, you really don't get the perspective of anybody else. You know, I think Shelley Winters is alone for a few moments, uh, you know, dunking the champagne bottle into the ice. Um, and the only moment with Lolita alone is, uh, we don't actually see her. We just see a letter that she's typing to him. Um, so he's, he really is this, this whole movie. And I think, I think there are fascinating scenes to be had with, I mean, this really, for me, is a two-person film. It's Humbert and Quilty. Yeah. Mm. And those various permutations, uh, to a lesser extent, Humbert and Charlotte. But it's a two-person film. And I think you could have made a play out of their scenes. You could have taken out this whole character of Lolita and this whole idea and just played those scenes out. And I think that's where the, the genius lies. But it is it is the only thing that Kubrick seemed to be interested in examining. How did these two guys feel about this and what do they want? And, and it's interesting, but like we've said, there, there are no other voices that peek through to say, let's cut through these lies. And Humbert tells us that he's a liar right away and that we can't trust him. We, we should know that he's an unreliable narrator and that's just not explored. Yeah, well, I think there's, yeah, there's two big questions there, right? Because the, the shift from kind of the, the relationship between Humbert and Lolita to Humbert and Quilty, which I totally agree with, is a major shift in kind of what the movie is about versus what the book is about. And I guess the second, and then the second question you're kind of raising is, is it possible for a movie to be subjective, truly? I mean, I guess, you know, you could kind of say there's like a structure like um, Usual Suspects where somebody is telling someone a story and then they turn out to be an unreliable narrator um, that where you can say where where you immediately sort of call into question everything that came before. But even though there's there is some narration from Humbert in the film, it's very, very minimal. And yes. and and so the the movie almost makes it so that you have to um, rely on the 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 camera at being subjective almost by knowledge of the book you know I, that, that's almost kind of where it comes into play the bigger question that that we've kind of danced around which is you know if this film if it's possible for this film 
to be viewed without knowledge of the book or or kind of to put that knowledge out of your head. I mean, it's interesting how so much of the criticism of this book or of this movie covers the differences between the book and the movie, which always kind of felt felt weird to me. Um, it, it makes sense because the book is so famous, but at the same time, it's not really, re- I, I guess, I, well, I shouldn't say definitively. I'll ask you guys, do you think that saying in a sort of criticism of any movie that's based on a book, in the book, they do this, is a sort of relevant criticism, or is it more of just a pure kind of like trivia detail? Well, I think it it depends on, uh, you know, most of the times when I find a movie that has failed and the book has succeeded is because the movie has completely lost track of either the narrative core, uh, or the, the, the core characteristics of its narrator or of its protagonist, which is what is the driving motivation for interest within the book. Like, you know, if they take a book and just turn it into, like, the surface story level, and you completely lose character motivation and subtext and, and like, the, the things that make it interesting in terms of a personal narrative, and it's just all surface, that's usually where I have, like, Oh, that movie, the book was so much better, which, you know, it is hard because some, you know, some movies you can easily separate the book from the, from the film because it hits the right notes and it gives you some of the pleasure that you had in the book. But, you know, when, when a book, uh, which I assume like this, I still, you know, I haven't read Lolita, but it seems to be, it's so much about the internal workings of this person and the way that they're lying to us and also lying to themselves to justify all their actions and their desires to you know achieve their desire which you know going back to your question of do you believe that he's in love with her i think he's told that's his justification for his actions he's told himself he loves her so he can pursue her in this manner um, and not feel like he's wrong because it's not wrong to be love isn't wrong and so by having this as your motivation for everything he's doing he can you know we can feel or he can feel that he's justified in his actions but I don't think he loves her because he just wants to possess he just wants to own it's an obsession and that's the same thing with Quilty at least Quilty Claire Quilty isn't in love with her he literally just wants to possess her and take her away from this other person because that's what he wants. He just wants to be the winner of this situation. And, you know, Lolita recognizes that pretty quickly and leaves him, um, you know, in the movie. And uh, But at the same time is still reliant upon uh, Humbert because he is the one that, you know, is doing would do anything for her as opposed to Quilty, who would do anything to get her. I think that the purpose of criticism in general is, or at least should be, to help us explore, understand, question, analyze. And so I think in certain circumstances, it's completely relevant to say, okay, this is what the book set out to do. If we are if we're saying that we're going to make a movie out of this, are you just purchasing a property and then throwing it all out and doing something else? Or are you trying to capture something that worked in the book? And in this case, 
I think it is highly relevant to refer to the book. And I wouldn't do that with every single film. This film, to me, makes sense. Because what everyone keeps trying to ask is, well, sorry, not everyone. What certain people keep trying to ask is, why do you want to have sex with a kid? And this film then answers the question right away in the most puerile sense. And I at least think there was some attempt to provoke us with all of those double entendres and with the humor. But the provocation is completely undercut immediately. And the book, however, provokes and questions and analyzes and seeks to make us think, why does this thing make us so uncomfortable? How should you be examining your life if you find any of this erotic or troubling or okay or any of those things? And the, and the movie has no interest in doing that, just lays this thing out flat and cannot understand why a person would set out to possess this object for a purely a standpoint of lust and also be able to then love the person again to the extent that they can and we don't seem to want to then examine what choices she's been given in relation to the movie I mean he takes her out of school he's taken away her education she has no opportunity to generate any sort of skills it's also a very specific time and place which doesn't help and then at the very end, when you could also have an examination of love and what the two of them meant to each other, what that would be, it becomes an extortion attempt. It, it feels like it's set up like that, though I don't think that that's what it is. But again, it's just all of this surface, quick, easy answers. And I don't understand the people who relate to that. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, not to keep throwing Kubrick's words back at him, but, um, you know, another really, uh, kind of mystifying aspect of this to me, uh, that, uh, and what, what he said about the movie was that he said the reason why he moved the, the, the Quilty murder up to the front of the movie was because in the book, he felt like the no, the narrative momentum was killed um, midway through the book when uh, Humbert finally gets Lolita into bed and because the question of the initial half of the book was is Humbert going to get Lolita into bed which makes no it's sense to me the, the worst thing I've ever heard. I mean what like God who would be interested did you read in every that? third word I don't I don't I don't get it did you read the first line at the top of every page? I mean, and okay, and then let's say that that is uh, a viable criticism of the book or a viable examination of the book. Okay, then take me through that and then make me feel something then. If that's the if that's the road you want to take us on, then let's look at that. But it Yeah, it through, is not. Like, yeah, no. T take us through that like what are what are the what's the psychology behind him wanting to you know finally commit fully to his uh you know taboo desire as opposed to 
a, a I mean moments of it is it's like a uh, it's like a slapstick comedy of errors as he's as he's trying to bed this girl right. and everyone is blocking him in some way or another in which or in you know the opening of the day bed in the uh, hotel room with the comedic timing of everything yeah is, it, it, is, it is so like like I can see the like oh it's hilarious he can't he can't ha- have he can't sneak in and try to have sex with this little girl in her bed because this guy this porter is trying to help him he's going to ruin it and it's it's so like the the moments like that like there I can see how they would be the blackest of humor but it really it really isn't it's so it's so crazy that that would be even considered something that is remotely funny. That like, ha ha ha! He can't, you know. Look at how funny this is. It's, I can't, I can't put myself in that mindset that that is something that is amusing. They could. I mean, did he want to put sound effects in next? It's you know, we could have had a relevant, interesting discussion about voyeurism if he wanted to take us on that road of will they or won't they, but that doesn't take place and. Uh, sorry, I'm going to go back to the well of the book again. All of this leading up to the point where they uh, finally do have sex, it's all about Humbert coming up with the right cocktail of drugs in order first so that she won't know it's happened. And, I mean, that's a really interesting and troubling matter as well. It's all very interesting and troubling and compelling and it does not translate here. Well, and that's another situation where, um, you know, this is not a book that ultimately could have been made into a successful movie at the time this movie was made because you're probably not going to get away with having him drug her and have sex with her, even though in a way that would have been sort of more... Uh, kind of impactful to the audience and sort of condemning of his behavior because I do think it would be very easy for somebody who uh, was a predator to watch this movie and think that uh, it's accepting of their behavior or of what the, you know their their darkest fantasies are um, whereas you know and, and I think that's one aspect of censorship that constantly kind of undercut the intention of censorship, you know, similar to, to how when somebody gets shot, they just grab their stomach and, and fall over. That doesn't teach people that violence, that, you know, shooting somebody is actually horribly violent and a terrible thing that, that you, you know, inflict on them. Um, the, the, the limits of what they were able to transfer from the book to the movie um, really shine through in those moments where they uh, are unable to kind of depict this guy's behavior as it truly would be in these situations. And just to be clear, Erica, like I agree with you, you know, in terms of be, having to compare this book, uh, this movie to the book. I mean, Kubrick hired Nabokov to write the screenplay because he felt like he needed part of that voice in the movie. I mean, if he felt like he got it and wanted to take everything apart and put it back together himself, he wouldn't have involved the author in the first place. Um, Although I do think there may have been a cynical side to that. I'm kind of contradicting myself now, but I do feel like there could have been a perception where this book was too, he felt like this book was too well known. And if he wrote it himself, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have the credibility. I mean, this is 
one of the very few Kubrick uh, films. I think it might be the uh, the only other than Spartacus where he doesn't have um, a writer's credit. It's just Nabokov, um, and so it kind of made the it gave the movie more credibility than than it otherwise would have had. Um, but I do think that uh, re- regardless, the the comparison um, is relevant, um, and I think kind of that aspect of it, the, the, the implication of the reader or, um, kind of the insertion of a perspective that's something other than Humbert is something that Kubrick tried to do with Quilty. And I think that's, you know, something that I definitely want to talk to you guys about because I, I do feel like there are moments, you know, even the, the daybed scene, which I think I totally agree. It's just very, it's just weird. The, the whole movie is weird. Just you're watching the movie and you're like this, that, okay, it's called Camp Climax, but why, why? Mm. Like, what does that really mean? What, what are you trying to, to do? Is this really just a clever pun? Because if it's just a clever pun, that's just horrible and weird. Um, but if you are trying to kind of, uh, get the get the viewer to ask why am i laughing at this um you know i think he could have if if we give him the benefit of the doubt that that's what he was doing i think he could have probably done it a little bit clearer because this is dangerous material that he's working with um but i think that that uh that there is a case to be made that he does do that through the movie and i think quilty is the best case for that and the thing about Quilty that I re- that really struck me this time is that Peter Sellers is basically doing a Stanley Kubrick impersonation. Um, you know, he sounds exactly like Kubrick. If you listen to interviews from this era uh, of Kubrick, I mean, he, he really sounds just like him. And he kind of is dressed like he would be dressed. And he's got a, a camera around his neck for a few scenes, you know. And if you think about the behavior of Quilty in the movie, it's kind of the behavior of the director because uh, Quilty is constantly keeping Lolita from uh, Humbert and the director is constantly keeping Lolita from Humbert and from our, and from us as well. I mean, he, he's the one that pulls him, uh, Lolita away. We don't see Quilty pull, uh, kidnap Lolita and take her to the farm. Um, you know, we don't see Quilty and Lolita off on their dates. Like the, the film is taking Lolita away from Humbert and these, all of these interactions kind of feel to me like the, uh, like how Nabokov puts, um, his, uh, himself into the novel, you know, with, um, Vivian Darkbloom and, um, all of the other little kind of meta things that he does, um, it, that feels like what Kubrick's attempt to kind of insert himself into the movie. Um, am I crazy or what, how do you guys feel about that? Uh, I'll, I'll ask Erica. I mean, what does, does that make any sense to you? Does it feel similar to what is going on yeah. in the book? I don't think you're crazy. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't thought of it before. And that's the first time that the viewing of Quilty and the insertion of Quilty or 
enhancing of that character makes the most sense. And I feel like that underscores this idea of we are, we should examine our own complicity. Right. And the two voices that you've given are the, are two, the, the two predators and whatever Kubrick wants to say about, well, I, you know, I set out to provoke and I set out to make you, make you ask yourself why you're laughing. I think that he is the person who is laughing the loudest. And I don't think you can convince me otherwise. I think he, I I don't want to say Kubrick was a child molester because I'm not going to come out and say that. But if he is looking for justification for his own thoughts and desires, he has made a movie that is a testament to that. Hmm. No, I, yeah, I I also didn't draw that comparison until just now. And uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense because he basically spends the whole movie courting her to get her to be in his film. Right. Which is probably the same dance that Kubrick has to do when courting an actress or an actor to be in this film, you know, that the meetings and the, all the machinations behind the scenes to get people in the same room together. And, um, it's very, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that is very interesting. And I agree yeah, with you, I'm, Erica. I'm I on think, board with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I think he's, he, the one who's laughing the most in this film is Kubrick. Like you could see that he's just getting great, like either he's getting uh, great pleasure in making everyone uncomfortable, like sitting there and watching like, Oh my God, let's do a Buster Keaton slapstick routine with this day bed in the middle of this scene where he's about to like, uh, you know, rape this girl. This is going to be hysterical because everyone's going to be like, what? And people that are going to laugh will know that those are the people that suck. (laughs) And the Mm -hmm. people that don't laugh, you know, like it's, it's almost like you could see him like just playing this giant game because you know when Matt when you're talking about camp climax how that's such just a bad joke you know it's a summer camp for all girls called camp climax he has so many of those bad puns in the movie or yeah. bad like uh, you know there's the cherry pie yes. joke yeah. earlier you can stay for the cherry pie there's the uh, he you know the move the one chess game that he plays he re- he takes her queen you know he. Uh, uh, you know, just yeah, it, it's so many things like that. yeah, the cavity. It, it, it's soft core it, to a certain extent. Oh, yeah. For, uh, ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and I, I mean, uh, people have kind of excused the the puns as a way to insert. Um, well, see there, I did I did my own terrible yeah. pun. Oh, you. Uh, yes, it's it's, pun it's puns and grossness with really great actors. Yeah, well, and that's a shame. Well, so yeah, so <laughs> yeah. he's he's done it. Uh, I mean, people have have sort of excused it as as a way to use or put eroticism into the film in a way that couldn't be used. Again, another reason why, in in so many ways in this movie and in and in many other movies, the censorship makes things more inappropriate and kind of messed up um, than if you were actually seeing the reality of what this story would tell you. Um, And yeah, and the games as well. I mean, there's so many games in the movie, um, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's the chess aspect or even how she seduces him says that, you know, we're, we can play this game. I learned at camp. Um, it, it all just feels like this, uh, yeah, this big joke and you can't tell who the joke is on. Um, and I, I mean, I guess 
you know, we'll, we'll obviously talk more about black comedy, uh, next time when we get into Dr. Strangelove. Um, and I guess there's a question of kind of, you know, where does that, um, where does that line end where it's okay to kind of talk about nuclear annihilation, but it's not okay to talk, to joke about, um, sexual molestation? Like, is it the way that he's joking about it? Um, for me, I feel like the jokes are more just indicative of the lack of authenticity in the rest of the film. And that is kind of what makes it so unsettling and not unsettling in the way that Kubrick might have intended it. But, um, I guess where, where, where do you guys feel like the black, would black, black comedy be appropriate in this situation in any sense? Uh, do you feel like the book is funny, Erica? I guess I'll, I'll start there. I do. Yeah. I do. I do feel like it's funny. And uh, they've retained a, some of those puns like cli- like Camp Climax. Yeah. Um, but it's I understand it in the book. And I'm constantly asked by the author and then by myself as a reader who is dedicated to question, okay, why did I laugh there? Should I? Is it a, is it okay? Quote unquote. Uh, let let's think about it. And yeah, I do think that there is a lot of humor in the book. I don't, but it doesn't ever feel like that the joke is on me, or that the joke's on Lolita or on Charlotte, which it does feel like that's the case in the film. Yeah, well, the joke yeah. is definitely on Charlotte in the film. Um, I, but I I do want to talk about her a lot because I. Uh, love Shelley Winters. I think she's incredible, and I think she's incredible in this role. Mm-hmm. I think that that th- if you read this role on the page, it's a very bad role. There's pretty. It's pretty much just one note of her being made fun of or acting like a terrible person all the time. And, but the way that Shelley Winters plays it, I am just with her at every minute. I get you know, in that first scene where she's taking him around that she's from this small town, but she is trying to show him that, you know, she's cultured, that she can hang with him. And I, I, I just would, would have, I would have preferred him getting hit by the car an hour in and just seen another hour and a half of her because she is, I think the best thing in this movie. Yeah. It's uh it's hard because you know, state, she does they do a good job of painting her uh into a bigger character than she could be like you said i mean you could see the 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 desperation of kind of like a widow trying to like you know her husband looked a lot older than her so maybe she was also married super young and she never got to experiment and have fun and do her things and you could see her now in kind of like the sexual liberation that is movement that is happening within the 19 early you know early 1960s when this movie is set or the late 50s early 60s you know her friends the cup the, the swinging couple yeah. down the street <laughs> you know and they're you know trying to help her get laid and it's uh you know it's you could see her but you know it's, it's so yeah she plays it really good that whole scene where uh she ends up uh, getting him away from the dance and back to the house and she's dancing for him and trying to kind of loosen him up a bit and he's obviously very uncomfortable it's 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 a nice turn because 
it, it that's the mo those those are one of the few moments in the film where I feel genuine kind of uh, interest in learning about their characters because you're learning so much in that scene about Shelley Winters and about Humbert who's you know you could just be on the surface saying well he's not interested because he wants Lolita but at the same time I think he he this is one of the few moments where you see that he has a psychological or mental inability to be attracted to a person of his age or that age like there is something wrong with him that it is something that draws him to young girls and that's one of those scenes and there's another one with the piano teacher who's obviously coming right. on to him and he's just like not interested at all like there is you know something you know that ha he has an issue with that isn't explored fully it's you know you know the best parts that we've talked about are like those moments where we, i think we've all agreed is uh quilty and humbert you know that that dynamic that they have and you know honestly at that point lolita becomes a macguffin the thing that they just want to possess and it could be a treasure it could be a uh, a secret it could be spy work you know it's it's unimportant when they're in a scene together because it's about their relationship and what they both want and that's why i think it's it's hard for me to you know rectify in my head uh lolita him truly being in love with lolita because i don't th you know it's a possession thing in which we've you know i've met i've said it before and We'll probably say it a couple more times throughout this uh, episode, but it's uh, it's hard to rectify that because it, she is such just such a one-dimensional uh, object that they both are after. So it's nice to see Shelley Winters, who gets a little, who gets to flourish and who gets to come up. Uh, I will say that I was a little bothered by how she went from being someone who, I mean, maybe she's just projecting this image of. Uh, of kind of like strength and desire and kind of driving her own passions and then after they get married how quickly she turns on a dime to the needy wanty possessive yeah. whiny uh you know uh, distrustful woman which is kind of you know i want to say that there was something that he did to her in there but because of the compression of time we can't have that or maybe she starts to feel that he is his eye is wandering somewhere which would give her that but because that compression of time is so fast in the in the narrative structure of the movie that the turn is too quick and uh, she becomes something that is a uh, you know just not as not as interesting at that moment I think Charlotte is the most fully realized character from start to finish she's the person that we can look at and say I understand this character. I have seen this character before. I've, I know people like that. And you understand it from start to finish, or at least that's, at least that's how I feel about it. Do you and feel like that comes from the writing though, or from Shelley Winter's performance? I think, I, I think in this case, I can separate out the book because, well, partially because they've retained so much of the actual text for mm. Charlotte and Shelley Winters, I think, was the perfect person to play it. And, and it was also the confluence of the right time for that kind of character as well, that the height of American bourgeois yeah. mores, the very most modern person that you can see of that time and place. And I think Shelley Winters then 
brings it to life. And Charlotte is not a character that I've ever liked. You're not supposed to. She mm. is monstrous and is very, is very needy and is only concerned about love. And yet that's also, you know, incredibly understandable. I don't have to like her or want to give her what she wants in order to really just find her incredibly compelling. And I do understand that shift that she makes because it, I think it was there the whole time. And now yeah. she actually, now she has been able to possess the thing that she wants to possess. Right. And is terrified by that getting out of her hands and has yeah. this, has this incredibly inflated sense of self and yet also in huge vulnerability. I think she knows at heart who she is but has no way to change and become the person that she wants to be. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. And I can like, uh, in my brain, I forgot the order of events. Her big blow up at Lolita came before the marriage thing. So in my head, it was like a sudden turn, but no, cause you can see like her character resents, you know, going back to the having an older husband, you can see that she might, she resents Lolita for, you know, it could have been a pregnancy that led to a marriage, like, because she definitely thinks Lolita has ruined her life. And so because of that antagonistic relationship with her daughter, her winning the guy and then maybe losing her, losing him to her would cause her to have that reaction. That's such of a strong reaction. And then you have that moment where she does have that monologue by herself holding the urn. And that's a really powerful moment for it her is. and her character. It's yeah. great. And how interesting it is also to see in those moments a mother who hates her daughter. Mm. You know, and again, all these things that we could have looked into, we could have imagined, we could have spent more time with, even though Charlotte doesn't take up a huge amount of the book. Mm. Uh, it, it just, again, we're, we're supposed to then laugh at her. And I, I don't, that doesn't sit well with me. It, we could have had so many other ways to contemplate her and react to her than just that and thank god though it's shelly winters because she can create something else in spite of i feel like what kubrick was trying to get her to do yeah well and he was yeah. not happy with her uh, you know i don't know if that was necessarily about what he was seeing on screen as, as much as it was about her uh unwillingness to kind of do go along with everything off screen but um yeah, he wanted to get rid of her uh, for for a little while, but um, I think because her role is not particularly large, he kind of bared with it, and I'm glad he did because I, I do kind of gravitate to her in every scene that she's in. Um, there, there's another kind of doppelganger here. I didn't entirely see it, I guess. I, I went back and looked, but in, in a few of the things that I read about this movie, um, people mentioned that her husband looks like a younger... Nabokov, like a picture of, of Nabokov mm. when he was younger. And that, again, to me, kind of gets into the idea, you know, I mean, that, that, that this woman would have been married to the author of the book, uh, and then he died, and now we have, um, you know, these two men vying for her affection, who <laughs> one of which is making the movie, um, in, in order to get to Lolita, of course. Um, and, that, and the whole, I, just the pure kind of pun of of the fact that he birthed lolita um is is also kind of uh you know an undercurrent there um 
I think the movie does kind of lose a certain spark when she goes away. And I, I think James Mason is is really great in this role, and I, I like him a lot, but I don't ever really feel like I'm getting anything from him that isn't kind of right there in front of me. Like, he he he, he feels like he's playing the role a little too straight to me okay i don't know do do you guys not feel that way you know i the the more we talk about this even all of the shit that i've been talking i think that i still probably like the movie better than either of you and Oh, God, maybe it's my position as the president of the James Mason Film Club <laughs> that I like him so much. Well, he does carry yeah, the you film. Know, I, I will say, by the way, I actually I have significant problems with this movie, but I am rather impressed with the filmmaking, and I do kind of, like, I, I won't say I like it, but it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and I do not get bored watching it. There's always something new to kind of engage with and think about um, in the film, so... But I, I interrupted you. Please go go ahead with oh, your no. uh, James James Mason adulation. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think that that is a really interesting observation, and I think that um, though I may like it a bit more than you guys, or or possibly the same, uh, that would make me want to watch it again because I was trying to pay attention, and what reflected to me on his performance was how great he is in these two person scenes how how I think he is a really excellent straight man for lack of a better word I think that he allows other people to shine and I feel like maybe part of that because so much of this is Humbert and Quilty that that was Kubrick saying we need more of Quilty for whatever reason let's keep let's keep giving Peter Sellers more and more to do and so James Mason is allowing him that space. So I guess I react more to that. I don't think of him as playing as much surface, but you know what? I'm going to have to watch it again. Yeah, I guess I'm not saying necessarily straight in terms of serious, but I think like maybe surface is a better uh, way to describe it. I mean, I think to me, he's doing what he's doing and uh, there's not, much that goes beyond that like I kind of I see his motivations as very kind of bald I I agree he doesn't he could easily have played it winking to the camera like this is all absurd which but he doesn't because Peter Sellers is you know winking with both eyes at the camera every time uh you know really playing it up um which you know I'm sure delighted Kubrick and delighted everyone on set while they're filming it and it's interesting, but it's almost like just as you're into this like mood of the story, that's when he comes in and breaks up any sort of tension with one of his big monologues, which if you watch them on their own, separate from the whole film, they're absolutely fantastic. But sometimes, it, for me it broke up the flow of what was going on, which I understand, you know, he it's all machinations to get what he wants, and later we'll see that, okay, these are all the things he did which led to this point, 
but it's almost like like we said like like they he actually films it he never shows james mason's reactions to anything it's almost always peter sellers the whole shot doing the whole thing in one unbroken take and that's super impressive but it kind of because it becomes so much about quilty at that moment and we're not getting james mason's response to anything it it makes it uneven for me and kind of slows the pace of mason's character arc down in the film at least for me i'm sure i'll change my mind watching it again you know in the future watch his watch his face when you watch it again in the moments where we're allowed to see it and so let's let's project ourselves into the past and let's make a staged reading of either the book or nabokov's adaptation his 400 page page screenplay and let's let James Mason perform that and then see what he mm. might have been able to do if if the if that inner life and those motivations could have been allowed to run rampant because I wonder if if he had done that if he had gone in that direction of I'm gonna bring something else to this if it would have felt odd or jarring or if it would have just gotten cut out or maybe i'm just giving him too much credit no i i i agree i mean i think that's what i'm missing here that it it feels like um it's almost like a uh well it's almost like an oscar movie where it's just like it's uh the imitation game or something where it's just like wow you really checked all the boxes here and i and I that that's a bad comparison because I hate that movie and I'm not trying to trash James Mason. He's great in the movie, but it feels very much like a straight down the middle uh, performance of this. And it, and it's a it's a top tier. You know, it's a it's a 95 mile an hour fastball. It's just like I think a curveball could have been a little bit more interesting here. Um, mm hmm. And, you know, as for Peter Sellers, I, I definitely, the first time I watched this movie, felt like, wow, Kubrick was trying to make the movie of Lolita, and then midway through he realized he couldn't actually um, make it clear that they were having sex in the movie, and so he just decided to make a movie about Peter Sellers. Um, that yeah. This time watching it, I didn't feel that way. And, I, and part of that might be the fact that I was so taken you know, early on by the feeling that he was, um, doing, uh, he was a stand in for Kubrick. Um, but I think he comes to Humbert at key moments. And so that aspect of it almost felt like a reminder through the film of the fact that we, you know, are watching this relationship take place and it felt like a reset of the subjectivity of the movie that we're not just seeing what happened um, and, you know, with no judgment around it or with no kind of perspective on it, that it's a reminder that this movie is um, that there's more going on beneath the surface than just the actions uh, of the characters. And I think Kubrick does that um through the the cinematography as well, just kind of um, the these these long takes um, uh, of really wide shots um, that part part of the reason he did that was to kind of get full performances and let people um, you know take what they want from those performances. But I think 
the other thing he really wants people to take from it are the things that he's stuffing into the frame in other places. Uh, you know, it's almost like he he constantly wants you to stop paying attention to what's going on uh, where the characters are talking and start paying attention to the backgrounds or to uh, the lighting or to the amazing use of black and white here. That aspect of it, I think, is more interesting to me uh, than anything in the story. And, the sto and it made me enjoy the movie a lot more. And Peter Sellers, I think, is part of that, that it feels like if you watch this movie just to get a Lolita adaptation, it's very weird and feels wrong and just doesn't fully come together. But if you watch this movie to see kind of like what Kubrick is saying about his own Lolita adaptation, it actually kind of is much more engaging and... Uh, less concerning because it does feel frequently like he um, is not as interested in the relationship as it seems like he is. I think I'm going to do one of my very favorite things for the next viewing, which is turn the sound off yeah. and go mm -hmm. from there because I, it had been a very long time since I saw this, and I've only seen it twice. And the second time was in preparation for us to talk. And so a huge amount of time had gone by, and I didn't remember much at all. And I was so excited from that very first moment of driving in the fog and then mm -hmm. getting to the house. And I thought, oh, I'm in for something. I'm going to really enjoy this. And, of course, that changed quite a bit. But... The driving and the motels and seeing America in this specific way, I really loved. I really loved the way it looked. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I feel like the visual style, and there were certainly movies uh, around this same time that were um, preparing Hollywood for what came in the mid to late 60s. Um, you know, the hustler like comes to mind like um the apartment um like movies that i think f sort of visually keyed into something that w was to come but i i feel like i watched this movie this time really thinking about like mike nichols and arthur penn like people uh who i mean especially who's afraid of virginia wolf feels a lot it feels strongly influenced by this mm -hmm. um you know, those big wide takes uh, with or wide shots with long takes and um, obviously like the the um, the use of black and white um, and that those really stark contrasts. Um, and I, I feel like uh, it, that aspect of the movie is uh, pretty, pretty interesting, especially considering the fact that this this movie came as the code was kind of crumbling and, and when you think about the fact that Spartacus was a big part of the blacklist coming down, you've got these two films here that kind of sh uh, shed the, the, the biggest issues of the fifties, these kind of things that were preventing movies from progressing in a way that, um, or American movies from progressing in a way that movies throughout the world were progressing you know, and this is right in the middle of the time when there's this huge influx of foreign films. You know, Bergman was huge at this point, Kurosawa, but like all the French uh, directors that were um, 
finding success in art houses in the US because people didn't have mature content that they could go to. Um, you know, they were they were still stuck in the land of the of the Spartacuses and um, Ben Hur and uh, those kinds of movies, um, and and they were able to go to films that to see adult themes and and issues that uh, they couldn't see on TV, um, and I think that aspect of this movie is uh, really interesting to me as well. Even though I think that they dealt with this subject in the wrong way. Um, the fact that they were dealing with this subject, I think, allowed for those later movies um, to kind of investigate more interesting dynamics or at least more kind of um, appropriate dynamics. I mean, I you know, like I think about Bonnie and Clyde or The Graduate, like the, the sexual aspects of those movies are things that would not have flown uh, at this even five years earlier at this time um, in Hollywood. And I think Lolita was a big part of paving the way for those later movies to uh, be able to do what they did. So do you think that Kubrick is talking to us through Lolita when she asks Humbert, have you seen any of those foreign films? And he says, yes. And she says, oh, I didn't think much of them. So is he telling us, hey, there's this whole other world out there dealing with these mature subjects in interesting ways. And I'm aware of them, but I'm not going to do it either for this. <laughs> that's a, yeah, and that's a good one. And then he also does it again later when she's like, he wanted me to be in an art film. And you could see him bristle at that because I'm sure at that point art film meant adult content films that were coming over right. from uh, Europe with uh, like the Summers with Monica type things. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think uh, I do think that was kind of a somewhat sly reference to that um, because these were issues that were. Uh, I, I mean, I think the I think it was the year before this uh, through a glass darkly one. Uh, best foreign language film um, that that's a movie that is uh, dealing with very intense and taboo sexual themes um, mm. it does it in a significantly more mature and uh, I think realistic fashion than this movie um, and that's another aspect of Lolita I think that is interesting where it becomes a question of what doesn't work here in the way that the sexual content is depicted that comes from Kubrick and what doesn't work uh, that comes from the fact that he was unable to produce the movie that sh that genuinely should or could be produced from the book. It, it, it's just, yeah, it, it's, a sh it's a shame that it feels like ultimately he took the low road and ultimately he chose to speak to uh, the Roy Moores of the world who mm -hmm. would find that delightful and chose to speak to the censors who would find those those winks fantastic as opposed to ask or asking some questions and proposing some answers. Yeah, I agree. He He went to entertain and be a lot more, uh, you know, just 
yeah, he he chose to entertain instead of instead of to probe. Like when we look at like something like Paths of Glory, which we watched, and he's asking and poking at some really hard questions about war and its place in our world and how it's driven by societal uh, separations. And you have all these other movies where he's poking at these uh, ideas. And this one, instead of poking and prodding at this uh, this taboo idea, he decides to play it as a joke and, and go along with the joke of it and just make it like it, it doesn't feel as a, as a deep dive into like what makes this thing so interesting a subject or something that would be uh, talked about and discussed and he decides instead to kind of just gloss over it with uh, humor and lightness and like you know basically you know an almost uh almost formulaic in terms of its kind of like romantic comedy type stylings and setups and and stuff like that it's uh it's it's hard it's hard to to see what where he's coming from at this point um you know but this i definitely feel is a stepping stone to uh dr strangelove you know and i i don't think that movie would have been as satirical and biting and funny without him experimenting in this film with that tone because up until this point he has never experimented with this tone uh subversive tone in terms of its humor and i think you know that's one of those things that as we go through the complete you know his entire you know works in order we've been talking a lot about how he grows as a filmmaker and changes and I think this, you know, this Lolita movie is a template for him to springboard very strongly into his next film and really have a better grasp and idea of how to work that tone. How do, how do you satire with subjects that are ripe for it? Exactly. I guess my, my next question about Lolita herself would be, you know, because I totally agree with you that, that she is the MacGuffin in this film, that mm. the, the central relationship is Humbert and Quilty. And I guess my question would be, is that intentional on Kubrick's part? And if so, did he do that in order to build up a the relationship that he found more interesting or did he do it in, intentionally to sh- to show that this that these men were ultimately not concerned with her that the movie kind of itself is this subtle indictment of the marginalization of the victim i i have a harder time believing the latter Am I giving, I guess my, the meta question of my I, I question is. I believe you. I believe, I believe us when we talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, I guess yeah. The, the meta question of my question is that like, am I giving Kubrick too much of the benefit of the doubt when I'm, I'm looking for right. a deeper kind of mean, not meaning to the movie, but a deeper uh, subtext to what on the surface feels like the wrong choices when adapting this I, this source material. 
I, I, I think I think you are. I think uh, this this movie has an old boys club feel to it that can't can't be uh, which is why he focuses on their relationship as opposed to you know there's very little consideration for what kind of damage that kind of abuse would have caused Lolita in her life. Like, once again, he doesn't concern himself with women. And if he did and had, a, you know, a, a concern for Lolita as a person, as a human, then there would be a lot more questions he would ask about the emotional toll it would take on her. And because he chooses not to do that, because he's more concerned with the emotional toll it takes on the predator about how he's obsessed over this thing and he's loved this thing and how it's driven him to murder, which to me is, if you want to really look at it, is the less interesting story, unless you're really going to get into James Mason's psyche, which we've all talked about, which would, you know, be that 400 page script in which he would narrate the whole thing. And you'd really get into his emotional state, which it doesn't go there. So I think, yeah, I, I feel like it's it's once again I think he picked the wrong the the wrong way to approach the material. Even with Shelley Winters, you know, she she has an interesting role and she's the most fleshed out and she has a really uh emotional story arc that I we all can that we all said we relate to very well and looking back at all the stuff he didn't like her and he wanted to write her out and he didn't like her he was trying to always alter her performance and she was always asking tough questions and not going with the flow of things and making it light and she wanted to bring more pathos to the subject and he kind of seemed to uh, resent that because he just wanted her to do exactly what he said you know that right there tells me that he wasn't focusing on the right aspects of the story because that should have been something very interesting to someone who understood completely uh, the direction and the feeling of of how this should affect all these people. And, you know, he chose to make it light and funny and go the satire route, but I don't think he was successful in it. I've got nothing to add to that, Travis. Thank you for being so eloquent. Stop it. <laughs> Get at it, sound. Now I'm all red and flushed. Well, here, here I, here I am over here, reading in all this stuff. And, and was... So we're we're doing what we should be doing as audience members. We're asking these questions of each other and trying to explore and find because we're excited, and we feel compelled to do those sorts of things. And I wish that Kubrick had chosen to try that instead of evidently pleasing himself first, and then that's what we see on screen. I guess what what I think he did get about the book was that the primary um, appeal of the book, or I guess the primary way that the book gets across what it wants to get across is through Nabokov's prose, not through the plot or the kind of surface level what happens in the book. And so from that perspective... I like to look at this movie thinking, how did he intentionally adapt this work to to genuinely reflect that aspect of it and to to use what was in the prose 
in a visual fashion. And so through that, it makes me kind of want to feel like there's more going on than I guess maybe I should be, uh, be giving it credit for. Here's what I cynically believe to be the case. I think that he identified with Humbert as, as a person who was as stunted as he was, as I believe him to have been, and wanted to bring that world to the rest of us. The thing that is most in my mind when watching this, this is eyes wide shut. And to me, I'm seeing a person who is stunted emotionally and does not have and is unable to express a true adult, emotional, sexual, romantic, fully realized expression of those feelings and those acts and can only express them in stunted ways. And I think that's what he saw with Humbert. Not the same, not the same that I am also interested in very young girls or boys, but that someone who was stopped, as as it's made clear in the book, someone who was stopped at a certain age and what they loved then is the only thing that they can ever love. Mm. I think he just could not, I, I guess though, in a way that I understand it when I see a billion other films that I respond to that that's an and as we were talking about this other foreign language film movement of watching these adult themes I don't think you look at this thing and think this was made by fully formed adults and Humbert is not a fully formed adult either and I feel like that's what he responded to yeah it's interesting because that's not really in the movie you know they he, he doesn't include the story of Humbert um having this interrupted uh, sexual experience with a with a young with a young girl when he was also that age um, and there's only sort of tangential hints that uh, um, Humbert is sort of a more generally attracted to girls of that age um, it, it's it, again another issue with the movie that makes it feel like more of a love story than it uh, than it actually is like that it seems in the movie almost like he's only interested in this one young girl as opposed to right. young it girls could be in anyone. general yeah yeah before and after her and what it is about them that he responds to and again what it is about Lolita that calls to something in him at a different human level, again, to the extent that he can feel those things. Yeah, I don't know. He felt like a kid in a candy shop when he was at Camp Climax there. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, I I can see that, but I can also see it as uh, uh, Kubrick's, uh, the way he's obsessive about certain things and the way those obsessions uh, are uh, pursued. You know, when he gets the idea for a film or a, uh, a story that he wants to tell and how obsessive he is about the details and learning as much as he can about the thing. And I could see him maybe, you know, uh, feeling like that is a character he can relate to because, uh, you know, he doggedly pursues Lolita to his own, uh, you know, destruction 
and that seems to be a running theme in Kubrick's in Kubrick's work or people uh, moving towards their own ends based on their own poor decisions and this is a movie in which this man you know decides to pursue this poor decision and it all the ramifications and the worlds that he wrecks and destroys and including his own all the way to the bitter end um but i can definitely see that idea of being someone that can't fully you know from all the from all the stories and backstories and tales you hear of kubrick in his kind of uh, you know he can be cold and uh and kind of uh withdrawn and i could see that kind of being something he sees in the character that he relates to in terms of his own personal life but uh yeah definitely i can see that kind of obsession key being part of the the motivation for him wanting to tell this story and but then subverting it into kind of like a comedic ends which lightens up uh, you know how people would perceive him maybe by like also adding the layer of humor that covers all the cracks in his facade that he can't fully express you know that uh that syndrome of doing that that uh making it funny so people don't see the pain kind of yeah yeah how how fascinating to examine compulsion and control that i i think like you're saying he would have been he would have really responded to and it's just not there. Well, and I think both both of your takes are, again, kind of key into the idea of Quilty as um, Kubrick, you know, in, in mm. the how kind of doggedly he pursues Lolita through the film um, and, and tries to, is consistently trying to take Lolita away from Humbert. You know, it's almost like he wants to possess this central desire of the book for himself you know he's taking this book and and turning it into his own movie i mean this this entire experience is him trying to get lolita away from humbert um who is the narrator of the the film um and and of the of the book but it's also weird because he he could just come in and take lolita and just be like hey come with me but he, the way he goes about yeah. it is such an odd choice. He wants Humbert to release her. Well, he's going through a game, right? I mean, it's yeah, a, trying to because, get him to like it's yeah, chess and, moves. and to the yeah, stunted big... sexuality. I mean, the the it, it's a game instead of a, a fight or instead of a you know a, yeah. a open, honest conversation. Um, he wants to play. The game is more appealing than what the actual uh final thing which again comes back to kubrick's criticism of the book which is that he's more interested in the process of trying to get lolita to bed than of the after effects of what it means once you have seduced a child um you know and and what kind of impact that will have on their life and on what what's going on he's much more interested in the the process and in fact eyes wide shut that's the entire movie the eyes wide shut is all um foreplay i mean that the whole you know intention of that movie and you know not to give away my whole thing on that before we do a whole episode on that but i mean the the, the movie starts with her with nicole kidman peeing in front of tom cruise they're completely 
uh, uninterested in having sex with each other, and it ends with her ready to jump on top of him because he's gone off on his little man adventure. Um, and I think that you know that that does seem to be more interesting to Kubrick than the actual consummation um, in any of these situations, and that and that's true of Quilty as well. Um, the the one thing that I want to talk about that we haven't talked about uh, is the picture uh, that Quilty hides behind as Kubrick shoots him. The painting. The painting, yeah. Um, Kubrick is, and we've talked about this, is kind of famous for not shying away from violence. Um, You know, in the killing, um, a man gets shot in the face, uh, just like this painting uh, gets shot in the face. Um, And here... He chooses to have Quilty hide behind a painting and we don't actually see him get killed. I was curious what you guys thought about that, why he made that decision, um, both in terms of hiding behind the painting and the painting that he chose uh, to hide behind. I, I always, well, in this past viewing, I took it as, you know, what he wants to do is hurt Lolita and he can't. So he takes his revenge out on Quilty, and Quilty was always hiding behind Lolita. The painting, shooting the painting in the face, is basically shooting Lolita in the face. Uh, it's 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 kind of a it's his metaphor for, you know, uh, what his real desire was to be. He can't possess her, so he would prefer to kill her, and he does his next best thing and goes and kills Quilty, which. You know, it's the same. It's the same game that they've been playing. You know, he's hiding behind Lolita and trying to maneuver things, and this time he hides behind that painting, and you know, he kills. He kills. Uh, he's he symbolically kills Lolita by killing him, and then later dies of coronary thrombosis, a broken heart. Mwah, mwah, mwah. <laughs> I am I am honestly surprised that they didn't put the shot through the painting's heart because that seems mm-hmm. like it would have even been even more on the nose. But yeah. I, And I, I'm 100% with you, Travis, in that reading. And then he's, it still comes off as really sloppy because he doesn't want to kill Lolita. He wants her to come with him. And mm-hmm. I believe that most of all. And so... If, if it had just been with hiding behind her if it had if or if it had been more graphically violent towards the picture of the girl it, it seems like it would have been more cohesive ultimately yeah because I think one of the things we kind of glossed over was when he's at his most frustrated and Shelley winters is going to take Lolita away from him he goes for the gun. And he points it at the door. And like we we kind of didn't talk about that fact that he's willing to kill for her, which we get at the beginning of the film, and then at the end he's willing to kill for her again. And there is that impulse control thing, which goes into his you know an inability to stop himself from wanting to have sex with a fourteen year old girl. That goes into his, you know, flying off into this rage that he could possibly actually not, you know, not control himself and kill someone. And, you know, there is that. And yes, I think it is very on the nose, you know, he's, and when I, I guess when I say like, you know, it, it, I don't think he would ever want, to, yeah, I don't think he wants to kill her. He loves her. 
but I think it's that if I can't have you, no one can kind of attitude, which he kind of repeats throughout the whole thing where it's like, you know, why are you at the soda shop with this guy? You know, you can't be with him. No, no, you can't go to this party. And he's like always trying to possess her fully. And it could easily become that obsession of if I can't have her, no one can and would, you know, could easily I could I could see in any other mo- like in a, in a longer version of this movie where he just kills Quilty then is not satisfied and then goes and hunts her down and kind of ends her life too and ends himself like this could just be a complete greek tragedy of you know just of epic proportions but because of you know that's where the film started so that's where the film needs to stop and you know it could become that violent and and horrible in another world I guess I don't think that he's intentionally kind of he wants to kill her or he even I I think it's more the movie is is kind of representing her as Lolita you know I agree with that aspect Mm -hmm. of it Um, again to kind of extend my quilty Kubrick reading of the film you know he's literally hiding behind art um, as you know and then that's what he's shot through. And, and if you represent the picture as Lolita, then he's hiding behind his movie as he gets killed. Um, but I think just from the perspective of Lolita, I think that you can say that even though he's killing Quilty, you know, what we're seeing get shot is this representation of a, of a young woman. And he has ultimately... The, the movie is framed around this murder, but the person that he has actually destroyed is Lolita. So w- what we're seeing him shoot is what we've actually witnessed through the rest of this movie, which is the, the destruction of this young girl's childhood. Uh, so I think from that perspective, the way the film ends with that shot and the sort of droll crawl which also is uh, included in um barry linden a little bit yeah yeah i mean we're we're seeing the kind of disconnect between the emotion of what we've seen him go through in the rest of the film and the way that the film has depicted it you know it's again this removal um from the the story of the movie and what actually happens um and uh from what the film itself seems to be interested in because that epilogue is as sort of bland i mean especially considering that his character is the central character in the movie and we never really stray from his perspective that it's just this one sentence about how he dies in prison like I don't think he did that because, you know, he was unable to film that scene or because he didn't, you know, want, uh, like he, he knew he had to wrap it up. Like, I think he did that intentionally to say like, I don't care about this person at all. (laughs) Like, you know, by the way, like this person died, like let's move on. (laughs) Um, which again, like becomes so odd in the way that he's depicted throughout the rest of the movie as really like, in love with this person and it's you know they've described this story as a tragedy which like i mean i it's a tragedy but it's not a tragedy about like this isn't wuthering heights you know like this is like a crime was committed and that's the tragedy of this movie the their relationship is not 
a tragedy. Um, but it is, it easily could be like, that's the thing. Like if he chose to struck a different tone for this film, like you can easily see this. Like if we changed our character to be about Shelley Winters and the relationship which she has with her daughter and this older man coming in that is playing both sides and, and on in, in attempts to woo the younger girl, you know, you could you you're just ripe for a Douglas Sirk type film as well. You know, you could definitely yeah. See well, this what if what if Lolita is uh, dripping with melodrama? Yeah, what if Lolita was aged yeah. six years up here? I mean, that we're, we're almost in yeah. graduate territory at that point. You know, like mm-hmm. I mean, except that you know he's her, he's the daughter's age in the graduate. But but it, yeah. if if it had been Dustin Hoffman's dad who started the affair. Does that change, I guess, what the movie is showing? It certainly changes the book entirely, and then it's no longer the book at all. But is there enough? Well, that's why yeah, I, I guess the, uh, I'm saying, is there enough of the kind of uh, fact that this is a, a child and not a woman of age in the movie that that wouldn't really not change much about what's happening? We'll see. And I think that's why it brings us full circle back to our beginning, which the big choice the original choice that they made as filmmakers was to age her up two years which gives you that ability to see this more as that kind of a story versus the real issue which was be a man with a very young girl i think that's the that that all leads back to you know his the choices that they made to what they chose to tell and what story they chose to focus on and what parts aspects they chose to bring out i will say i'm i'm now more interested in watching this movie again after your analysis of him being quilty because now i just i just want to watch the whole movie again and just follow that as a as an arc because that seems far more interesting than the like the past few viewings that i've had of it just trying to pick a character and stick with it that's for sure erica what do you think of the uh i guess what i'm asking is does this movie acknowledge the fact that he is a child sexual predator absolutely not and i think your observation about the use of the painting is that we've that he has ruined a young girl's life is is entirely true and then the movie spends two and a half hours telling us that that's not the case mm. mm-hmm. and so i i don't i just don't think it was well thought out um or that was possibly the intention and shot of course at a different time and and he's ruined himself and and in the book when we get to that point he is physically a ruin as well which makes sense to me because the idea that I'm going to disagree with you slightly, Travis, I, I don't think that he ever would have killed Lolita. It, that could have been an entirely different world, yes, but it would have been mm-hmm. a different character. Yeah. He's ruined himself because he is a predator and a pedophile. And so without addressing that, then you can't address his own ruination. Yeah. And Or hers. And... So he never would have killed her. He never would have killed Charlotte. And we just don't go down those roads. Yeah, well, I guess like if, if she hadn't run out, or if she hadn't discovered the diary, if she hadn't run out into the street, he wasn't going to kill her. You know, Lolita, I mean, I'm sure he would have tried to get her to not go to boarding school or whatever, but assuming she would have gone to boarding school, 
what would the rest of his life look like? Would he have left Shelley Winters and then gone on with his life? There's no implication in the movie that if he somehow is unable to possess Lolita, that he will simply find some other victim that is, you know, of the same ilk uh, and, and that he finds as attractive in the sense, in, uh, to, to any degree, let alone to the degree that we see in the book. It's, uh, sorry to break in this other phrase, but he just continues to get older and they stay the same age. Mm. You know, it's, he he would have moved on. But I don't feel like that's in the movie. It is not. It is not at all. Yeah, I mean... And if 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 Lolita would have been sent off to boarding school, he probably would have gone to Beardsley College and met another thirteen, twelve year old girl that he would have pursued. I think that passion would have just yeah. continued into another person. But I mean, going going, I I agree, Erica, with what you're saying about the the painting and the shooting. I I think in that alternate world where he would have killed these people, I, you know, I'm thinking of a darker time of a now this, if this movie was built now, I think that definitely would have been something that would have been pursued as a more tragic ends and means. But I think, you know, even more on the nose would have been if he shot, if a quilty hid behind a mirror, right. You know, well, there is a lot of duality for sure in the film. That would have made so much more sense too. Mm -hmm. If you, it, it would have, just would have seemed to have been more consistent i i think that what we ascribe to this is much more interesting than what gets played out yeah well and and that kind of uh leads me to to my next question which is you know eric i know you haven't seen spartacus but one thing we talked about on that episode was how the film does touch on kind of kubrick's themes but it doesn't fully flesh them out and the, I think the reason for that was um, the studio involvement, the fact that he you know, wasn't involved in pre-production. He just came on as a hired gun and did what he could in production to make the movie interesting. Here, though, it seems like what we're saying is that Kubrick was getting in, in his own way, that he has these you know, themes of obsession and um, power and uh, possession and things like that, and sex and death for sure um, in the movie. It's just that because of his kind of reading of this source material or because of the, his relating to the, to these characters that he was unable to kind of get into those issues in a kind of mature and meaningful fashion. Would you guys agree with that yeah i agree with that i i it just makes me ask the question though then why do it then stop but i that's easy for me to say well i think that's the question about adapting this book in general i mean it i i i understand the argument that that prose is simply just a style to communicate themes and and ideas that you want to get across to the reader and you can do that in film just as effectively but at the same time there's so much complexity to what Nabokov was talking about and saying if it's a tall order to demand that of your filmmaking and particularly of your filmmaking when and, and he had made a couple of really great movies at this point but 
he was only in his early 30s when he made this movie and i think was it was more the mistake to to go after this than it was to um than than anything that he did in production uh except for perhaps aging her up yeah i think i think it it feels a lot like hubris you know it's the un, unadaptable book well i'll adapt yeah. it and that'll show everyone which you know it's kind of like it's kind of like the uh the gus van zant gambit of you know when i become famous i'm going to do a shot for shot recreation of psycho and then finally like here here's the money to do that and he's like god damn it now i have to do it mm-hmm. and it's kind of like that same thing like here you got that book you want it you can do it and he's like okay and it almost feels like he self-destructs a little bit within the film as well just like you know hum- humbert does you know it's just it's mutual destruction yeah. well it does yeah. almost feel like i mean that, i think that's a good comparison because it's it feels like with that psycho remake nobody ever took the time to ask wait why are we doing this what are we mm-hmm. trying to say about psycho or filmmaking or really anything like is this purely just an exercise and i it feel this feels a little bit like that that nobody asked why should lolita be a movie um, and I, I think that is almost more the complexity of the movie as I'm watching it. I'm thinking, why did Kubrick make this? Why, why did he think he could get away with being visually depicting Lolita when we are essentially intending, uh, intended to only know Lolita through the eyes of Humbert? Can the camera be subjective? I, I I don't necessarily think that that's possible, and so I guess it, it almost seems like an impossible task. I I can only imagine that he felt like he had a great handle on it, that he really felt yeah. like he nailed it, and consistently said, "Well, you know, I can I can understand this one criticism, right. but I nothing else." Then that's how he felt about yeah. it, and fine we disagree right right Mm -hmm. so uh on this show erica we are going through kubrick's uh filmography chronologically and we are ranking these movies in order of uh preference um so travis uh this is lolita where would you slot lolita i kind of feel like i know where you're going here so if we're gonna go from the my least favorite to the one i've liked the most so far Fear and Desire still holds the bottom slot. Then Lolita. Wow, there you go. I, I found more. I've I found I found myself more engaged with Killer's Kiss, with all of its flaws and all of its mistakes. It, it was all the, the young, up and coming, fresh faced kid making these uh, daring choices in that movie. Even though they some of them failed miserably, held my attention more than this, which felt like it just felt like someone he was flailing up there trying to just find the tone of that film and not like you know rectifying the the pedophilia of the of the central it was the giant pedophilic elephant in the room (laughs) that no one he never seen we never talk about and it's just stomping around in every (laughs) scene um, well, I'm definitely never going to think about elephants the same way again. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, I, uh, I will go higher than, than you. I went lower than you with Spartacus, but I, I'm going to slot this above Spartacus because I find the filmmaking so, uh, mis- mystical and engaging, uh, 
I don't know if I'm going to watch this movie again very soon. It will probably be a very long time before I, I try again, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to put this uh, above Spartacus, but I'm also going to put this below Killer's Kiss. I think Killer's Kiss just to me, there's just so much to kind of enjoy about seeing a young filmmaker play with a very limited amount of resources and um, see what they can come up with. So anyway, I mean, that that's where that's where I'm going to go. But um, Erica, wh- where would you kind of slot this movie? And and also just in the in the bigger picture, is there a, a Kubrick movie that it, that you uh, particularly um, are engaged with or that, you know, that you would kind of rank at the top? Well, it, it's a little bit of a tie for me because I love The Killing. I love Paths of Glory. I love The Shining. I, I, I guess I still probably put The Shining at the very top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Followed closely by Paths of Glory and The Killing. They would, they would probably compete with each other a little bit for that next spot. And then I still haven't seen the very earlies, The Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire. And, and like I mentioned, I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. Um, I also haven't seen Full Metal Jacket, but I don't expect to love that and still haven't seen Spartacus. So it's kind of a race to the bottom for everything else. But after my very, very tops, I would go with Dr. Strangelove. I would put Lolita then, I think, just below that, but above A Clockwork Orange in 2001. Mm. Still, after repeated viewings, I still can't quite bring myself to love in the way that other people do. All right. And eyes wide, sorry, eyes wide shut, very bottom. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think Cole tra- was trash talking eyes wide shut as well. He's not a, he's not a fan either. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> we're we're correct. <laughs> All right. Well, this was I haven't see, I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters. Oh, really? So really oh, wow. Yeah, that'll be really yeah. interesting. Um all right. Well, this was this was uh, I, I can't say one that it was 100 percent fun, but it was still really great and um, and stimulating and, a, and a, a great conversation. So thank you, Erica, very much for for coming on and um, humoring us with the uh, with having to sit through uh, this this movie again. <laughs> no, thank you both. It, it was exactly what I always want, which is to find something new to make me want to look at something in a different way. So time well spent. Cool. Yes, very engaging and very, 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 we appreciate you coming on and talking about this. It's, it was awesome. Absolutely my pleasure. And uh, next next time we will be talking about uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Very long title that will not fit in the podcast title. What do you think, uh, Travis? Well, I, you know, I'm going to have to build up all of my precious fluids before <laughs> yeah. I can uh, watch that film, but I'm going to... Uh, I'm looking forward to being complete for another week. All right. See you then.